Um, well, if you have a Bible with you, would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11? If you don't have a Bible with you and would like to use, we've got these red Bibles in the seat pockets in front of you or underneath the seat in front of you. And um, if you don't have a Bible at home, this is our gift to you. We'd love for you to have the Word of God available at all times. And so if you are using a red Bible, um, it is on page 584, Hebrews 11. We're in the middle of this sermon series that we are calling From Death to Life. This is week four of this series, and so far, we have looked at, in week one, how from before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ to save us. And we said then that that began this unbreakable chain of events that went out through history that culminates at the end of time in which those who are in Christ will be glorified and will live with God forever. And we said that this is an unbreakable chain, step after step after step, that God has done for us, has applied to us in order to bring us from death to life. This is what we mean when we talk about the word salvation, that salvation is this process going from death to life that God has given to us. And theologians um, call this the order of salvation. And so if, if you're curious more about what it is that we're talking about, that's what it's called, the order of salvation. Um, it's this unbreakable chain of events. And the last three weeks... We looked at how God has chosen us, he has called us, and he has drawn us to himself. He's called us and drawn us to himself. And those are the, sort of the prerequisites for what we're going to talk about today, which is responding in faith. And responding in faith is then the prerequisite for what we're going to talk about the next five weeks, which is that God, through Christ has justified us, adopted us, is sanctifying us, is preserving us, and then has promised to glorify us. So in essence, today's message about faith is sort of the hinge upon which the whole order holds. Everything before now has sort of led to saving faith, and then everything we're going to look out afterwards is in response to saving faith. And so that's why this message is so important, because if, if we don't get this, if we don't get what does it mean to respond to God, well, then what was the last three weeks all about? And if we don't get how do we respond to God, well, then we're going to miss out on understanding what the next five weeks have to teach us about living in Christ today. So that's why we're looking at faith, and what does it mean to respond in faith? What is the nature of faith? That's our question this morning. And we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11 because Hebrews 11 is it's towards the end of this book. Um, it's really a sermon. And so I'm going to reference the author. I'm going to say the pastor because it's a sermon written to encourage Christians. And at the end of his sermon, he begins this long list in chapter 11 of these pillars and heroes from the Old Testament, who displayed great faith. 
So that's why we're looking at chapter 11, just the first few verses where the pastor lays out for us what is the nature of biblical faith. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see that biblical faith is three things. It's substantial, it's rational, and it's personal. That biblical faith is substantial. There's something to it. There's substance behind it. That it's rational and that it's personal. So let's read Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3, and then we're going to jump down to verses 8 through 12, and then we'll talk. The pastor writes this. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God and that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Then jumping down to verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of that same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this, um, this testimony of biblical faith. We pray now that you would use your word and through your spirit, open our eyes and ears and our heart to understand what it is that you have called us to do in response to your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. First, biblical faith is substantial. In the first half of verse one, um, the, the pastor tells us this. He says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. This is the first insight that we learn about biblical faith. It is the assurance of things hoped for. And, and that word assurance, uh, it is, it's a fascinating word, and it means, um, it means something real as opposed to imaginary. It's a unique Greek word that means something real as opposed to imaginary or, uh, or deceptive even. It's a word that means something is present uh, and not absent. It means something is substantial, that there's weight to it rather than something that's shadowy or misty or just vapor. In, in, you know, in, in popular movies or writing, uh, you might think of this difference between like seeing a, a real human being as opposed to like a, a ghost or a whisper of, of a person. That's the difference. The, the word assurance means that there's something substantial there. It's real. And 
the pastor uses this word in relationship to the things that are hoped for, these future things. Faith is believing that those future things are real, even though they're not present. It's this assurance that some future circumstance is so real that I believe it's, it's even present now. Imagine uh, two employees who are preparing to head into a job interview, uh, a job interview at their company and in a management position that just opened up. And on the outside, both of these employees, I mean, they look the same. They've both been preparing for this interview. They've got their resume all, all neat, their rehearsed questions and answers. They both have similar experience at the, the workplace. They both go into this interview hoping to have this job. But what the first candidate doesn't know is that the second candidate, uh, two weeks prior, was called into their supervisor's office and, and said, hey, um, we are creating a new management position, and we've created it actually for you in mind. Uh, we think that you are qualified for this, and we are creating this position for you. And, and so yeah, we have to open it up to everyone. We have to interview everyone that applies, but we want you to know that we have made this position for you. We want you to have it. In fact, if you go through the interview, as long as there's no red flags, it's yours. And so both candidates walk into the interview hoping for the job, and yet one person hopes for something that's not really there. The other person walks in with a sense of hope that comes with the assurance that what they're hoping for is, in fact, real, and that they're going to get it. That's the kind of faith that the pastor is encouraging us to have, this kind of faith that has this assurance that the future thing that we're hoping for is almost, it's so true and so real that it's almost this present reality. It's got substance to it. But what is it that, that this pastor is saying we hope for? Because we could hope for a lot of things, and we could have generic faith for things. You know, when a, when a loved one is in the hospital sick, we, we hope for healing. So we can hope for these future things, but what is specifically biblical faith hoping in? Well, as I mentioned, Hebrews 11 begins this long list of uh, these pillars of faith from the Old Testament who are hoping in the promises of God. They're hoping that what God has promised to do for them is, in fact, going to happen. So they're, they're, they're hoping in these things that have been revealed to them from God. So biblical faith is this assurance that what God has revealed is going to happen will, in fact, happen. What has God promised? I mean, the Bible is filled with these promises from God. He has promised that uh, he will comfort the weak, he, he promises that he will give rest to the weary. He promises that he hears us when we pray. He promises to forgive us of our sin when we confess to him. He promises that if we seek him out, we will find him. And there's lists of promises. 
You can do a quick Google search and find 40 promises of God that will make your day better. You can find lists of 16 promises of God that will get you through this hard time. The Bible is full of these promises of God, and they're great. We should know what these promises are, but is there something specific that possibly this pastor is referring to? Is there something specific that God has revealed to us now in his word that our faith ought to be in? I think that the Apostle Paul was thinking about all of God's promises and and wondering, is there something that unifies them all when he writes in 2 Corinthians that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus? And what Paul is saying in there is that this, the ultimate revealing of God's promises, the, the final revelation of his character and his word and his promises, the substance of what he has promised is Christ. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. And so biblical faith is knowing and trusting in Christ. He is the substance that we hope for. He is the reality of all of these promises that the Lord has given to his people. And so we need to know Christ. We we need to know who Jesus is. We need to know what he says. We need to know what he has done. We, We have to know how he has interacted with people. We need to know not just from his life, but even the rest of the New Testament tells us what did his life mean for us. We have to know these things because that is what biblical faith is, is is the assurance of the things we hope for. Christ is the object of that hope. So we have to know who it is that we have hope in. Biblical faith is substantial because it is faith in a person the substance, the reality of all of God's promises to us. That's what it, it's the first thing we learn. Biblical faith is substantial because it is in knowing Jesus. Second, we learn that biblical faith is rational. It's rational. He continues in verse one, the pastor says this, faith is in only assurance of the things hoped for. It's also the conviction of things not seen. The pastor is saying that biblical faith is not just knowing about Jesus. It's also having the conviction that the things that Jesus said and did are true. Whether you were around back then or not, whether you saw it or not, biblical faith is being convinced that what Jesus said and did is true. I was a world religions major in college, and part of what that meant was I I took classes, and this wasn't a Christian university, but I took classes on the various religions of the world to learn about them and study them. And so I took a number of classes on Islam. And so I, I read the Quran, and I learned about the life of Muhammad 
I learned about his disciples and the, the religion that was created after, uh, after what they say he was taken up into heaven. I learned about the cultural sort of climate out of which the religion of Islam sprang forth. I've learned about what does it mean for a, a Muslim today to practice their faith. I learned a lot about Islam. But I don't think it's true. I, I know what they believe, but I don't think that what they believe is true. Biblical faith is not just knowing about Christ. It's believing what Christ said and did is true. That's what the pastor says. We need to have conviction about these things that we didn't see. I think often when we're engaging with non-Christians, when we're talking with our neighbors, hopefully about faith and about Jesus and about what does it mean to be a Christian, as we're engaging with them, often will hear this objection. Maybe you currently have this objection or you know someone who has had this objection. Well, they say, I can't believe that this is true. Just look at all of the supernatural and miraculous things in the Bible. I can't believe that there was really a flood that covered the whole world. I can't believe that Moses parted the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites walked through it. I can't believe that Jesus turned water into wine or walked on water. There's a lot of water, supernatural things in the Bible. I, I can't believe that Jesus took a few loaves of bread and fish and fed the 5,000. It's, it's, it's too miraculous and supernatural. I'm a man of facts and science. I just can't believe it. It can't be true. There must be some other thing that happened and these you know, pre-modern, non-scientific minds just wrote down what they thought happened. That could not have happened. I'm a man of science, not a man of faith. Often, when we encounter people, what they think faith is, is blind faith. Sort of taking a step into the darkness, not knowing if anything's going to catch you. But the pastor here says we are to have conviction. Biblical faith is one of conviction. And what's interesting is this word conviction, it comes out of the, the Greek sort of sphere of words associated with um, the judicial world. It's a legal term. It's a legal term for proof or evidence. So today, like in a, in a court, when a lawyer comes to argue their case, they bring with them evidence so that before the jury and the judge, they can argue their case. So they'll, they'll bring out eyewitnesses to the event, and, and they'll bring out expert testimony to speak to the event, and they'll bring out this other evidence that altogether builds to this conclusion, this conviction of what really happened. That's the word that the pastor says, that's what faith is. Faith is not blind faith, stepping out into who knows what. Faith is being convinced that the evidence supports the facts. And so biblical faith is rational. It's calculated. 
For example, let us talk about perhaps the greatest miracle in the life of Jesus. And it's what happened to him after he died. He rose from the grave. Let's, let's put it on trial. Let's bring out our evidence. First, the first written testimony about the resurrection, it's not in the Gospels. Paul, the Apostle Paul in, in, second, in 1 Corinthians, one of the very first early Christian writings that we have is the first testimony of the resurrection. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and according to scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the other 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul is saying that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to over 500 people, many of whom were still alive. If you want to know whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, go to Jerusalem. There are hundreds of people who saw him. That's the first evidence. There's expert testimony. Paul knows there are over hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ. Go ask them what happened. Second piece of evidence. Let's bring in the women. Because on the morning of the third day, we read from the Gospels that the women who followed Jesus got up early and went to the tomb. Jesus was crucified and wrapped in cloths and then buried in a tomb and protected by Roman guards. These women went early the morning on the third day to pay honor and respect to their crucified Savior. And when these women got to the tomb, what did they see? Nothing. Jesus wasn't there. The stone had been rolled away, and Jesus' body was gone. And then Jesus appeared to them. And these women testified to the resurrection. Now, if you have objections about the resurrection, you might say, well, clearly the early church fabricated the whole thing. They made it up, they wrote it down, they believed it happened, but it really didn't. They made it up. If the early church was going to make up this story, they would not have made the first eyewitnesses to Jesus women. In that culture, a woman could not go before the courts and testify because they could not be trusted. And so a woman's testimony had zero weight. Why in the world, if the early church wanted to convince people that Jesus had risen from the dead, why would they have chosen women to be the first ones to testify about it? They wouldn't unless it actually happened and they were trying to tell us the truth. Third piece of evidence. Look at the early church. I mean, after Jesus died and was raised, he appeared before his followers. At that time, there were maybe 120 members of the early church. And he commissioned them into all of the world. 
And then he was, was taken up into heaven. And the early church went out. And within the first just several years, that group of 120 became hundreds and then thousands and then hundreds of thousands as this message of the resurrection of Jesus went forth into the Roman world. Now, that's awesome, but it's even more amazing when you think that at every turn, they faced opposition. They faced persecution. They faced Jewish and Roman leaders who wanted to put them to death. And in the face of death, they said, will you recant your belief in Jesus? And time after time, these Christians said, no, I believe he rose from the dead. And even if you kill me, I will live with him. These people were willing to give up their life because they were convinced. They had this conviction within them that Jesus had risen from the dead. I think when we put the resurrection of Jesus on trial, when we look at the evidence, the burden of proof doesn't lay on Christians to argue the validity of the resurrection. The burden of proof actually lies on those who object to it. They have to argue against the evidence. The pastor tells us that biblical faith is not blind faith, is rational. There's evidence for it. I don't want you just to know it. I want you to believe that it's true. Examine it. Look at it. Study it. And reach a conviction of those things that you haven't seen. The evidence is there. Third, and finally, biblical faith, it's, it's not just substantial. It's not just knowing the person of faith that we look to. And it's not just rational. It's not just weighing the evidence and coming to a conviction that I believe what he did and said is true. Biblical faith is also personal. It's personal. After the pastor shows us this nature of faith, he launches into this list of, of Old Testament heroes of the faith. And he begins all the way back with Abel. And, and then Enoch and, and Noah, these great men of faith from before time. And then he gets into Abraham and, and Sarah and their sons, Isaac and his son, Jacob. And then he goes on and talks about Moses. And, and on and on again, he lists these people who made their faith in God personal. How do we know that he made, they made it personal? Well, verse 8 shows us, by faith, Abraham obeyed. His faith wasn't just something that he believed internally. It, 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 it seeped into his body and it went out with action. He believed. He had faith. How do we know? It's because he obeyed. You might remember the story of Abraham. Abraham lived in a, a far-off country called Ur, and he wasn't, uh, at that time, he didn't really know who Yahweh, the God of 
what would be Israel was. But God spoke to him and said, Abram, I'm choosing you. I'm calling you out of your country. Leave your father's household and go to this land that I promised you. So Abram and his wife, Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, they, they left and they journeyed on. And they came to this land, this promised land. And yet we read that they didn't even live there as owners. They lived there as foreigners. They never owned any of that land that was promised them. They lived by faith in the promises of God that they knew were future, but they lived as though they were present. And then after they got there, the Lord spoke to them again and said, Abraham and Sarah, you are going to be the parents of a great nation. You will have descendants as many as the stars and as the sand of the seashore. And again, Abraham and Sarah, they had to believe this by faith because they were both old, well beyond the year of childbearing. And in fact, Sarah was barren. They had tried and tried and tried nothing. And yet God spoke a promise, this promise that they would have a child. And not just one child, but that that child would become more and more, and that Abraham would be the father of a great nation, and in fact would be the father of faith for many nations. And they believed. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive, and they bore a son. These people, Abraham and Sarah, they, they personalized their faith. They said, God has promised me these things, and I'm going to walk in obedience as if they were already true. They made it personal to themselves. Our pastor is trying to teach us that biblical faith is not just knowing of God's revelation in Christ. It's not just believing that those things are true. It's also believing that they are true for you. Abraham and Sarah believed that God's promise was true for them. And what we're invited to, what does it mean to have biblical faith? It means to believe that these promises, that the substance of which are in Christ, that they are true for you. It means that when we learn about Jesus, we learn that he is a savior of sinners. And, and we learn that to be a sinner is that we have, we have rejected God and rebelled against God and that we're actively turned against him. But that we learn that God has promised to save sinners through Jesus. And that he sent Jesus into this world to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin. He has promised that if you place your faith in that person, that your sins are forgiven, that if you look to the resurrection of Christ and believe it to be true, that that life is now yours. This is what saving faith is. It's not just knowing about Jesus or even believing that the things about Jesus are true. It is believing that they are true for you, that you are the sinner that Jesus died for.
that you are the sinner who has been brought from death to life in him. In this order of salvation, we've seen that God has chosen us from before the foundation of the world so that in Christ we might be glorified. But the hinge of the whole thing is here. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you believe that what he said and did is true? Do you believe that what he said and did is true for you? That's saving faith. It's going to Jesus and saying, you died for me. Let's pray.